All right, let's, uh, let's jump into this story. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before, right? Uh, actually, you have heard this story before. This is maybe in the top three most famous stories in the Bible. Today could be uh, just another day in church for you because you grew up in church and you've heard all these stories, or today might be the first time that you've ever held a Bible in your hands. And it doesn't matter, wherever you land on that spectrum, you know this story. This is a famous, famous story. And here's the problem with that. Uh, The problem with a story that's so familiar like this is that while familiarity doesn't necessarily breed outright contempt, I mean, even though that's a, a common saying, it rarely breeds outright contempt. Familiarity can actually breed a level of misconceptions and just kind of outright apathy. And when it comes to this story, misconceptions abound in this story. So let me give you just two of them that are really popular. The first misconception is that this is a children's story. Uh, If you grew up in church like I did, uh, this is one of my favorite stories that I could hear uh, before bedtime, which is a weird bedtime story, you know? Uh, But I just loved the story as a kid. In fact, for, for one of my birthdays one year, I don't remember which one, but my parents bought me against any sort of wise judgment a uh, David-style slingshot. And those are as dangerous as you might think they might be. And I would go out to the fields of Choctaw where I grew up, and I would slay Coca-Cola cans and the occasional window of our house. And I just loved the slingshot. Like, so for me, just this is a, a story growing up that captivated me as a kid. I would like put myself in the story and pretend to be David and just, you know, try to hit things with the slingshot. And that's one of the dangers that we have as adults approaching the story, the danger is to just think that this is a kind of childish fairy tale like Jack and the Beanstalk or Little Red Riding Hood, some little cute story that might have a a moral point to it, but it's just for kids. I just want to remind you that this story ends with David covered in blood holding a dude's severed head. This is a very adult story. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't be rightly shared with kids. It can, but this really is a story that's way more nuanced and way more complicated than what you might at first think. That's a misconception. It's just a kid's story. Second misconception is that this is a story about me fighting my giants. Um, A few weeks ago, there was a guy... Uh, running through a neighborhood in Edmond, one of, one of our pastor's neighborhoods, running through one of his neighborhoods completely high on drugs and completely naked. Now, if you're curious, like, what's the difference between naked and naked? Naked is when you don't have any clothes on. Naked is when you don't have any clothes on and you're doing something that you should not be doing, right? This guy was naked. He was high on drugs. He was running through the neighborhood and he was shouting this, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And then finally the police came and subdued him. And this guy's delusional, right? You hear that story like, that guy's delusional. Now, we are often delusional as well. Not in the same way. Like, not usually taking off all of our clothes and running through neighborhoods high on drugs. But when it comes to the way we often read the story about David and Goliath, we become delusional and we put ourselves into the story in the place that we should not and do not belong. And often this story is turned into this moral story about how you and I can face the giants in our life. All you need to do is find the stones that God has already provided for you and then muster up the courage and the bravery to fight against your giants. 
Two problems with that. Problem number one is, can you just imagine if this actual event and story uh, was written down and handed to the Israelite army that day to help them with Goliath? Hey, we know you're scared, but just try harder. Like that wouldn't have done them any good. So we know that that can't be the point of the story. The other problem is this isn't how Jesus read his Bible, and it's not how he taught us to read our Bible. Uh, In John 5.39, he's addressing the religious leaders of his culture, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that it is in them you have eternal life. Listen, he says, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is a story about Jesus. Uh, Ultimately, in Luke 24, uh, there's some disciples of Jesus that are wrestling with the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross, and they didn't see that coming. And so they're wondering, like, what is this all about? And they don't know yet that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is ironically walking on a road with them as they're processing and wrestling with their doubts. So by the way, if you're here and you're wrestling with doubts, this is a safe place to do that. Jesus welcomes doubters. But look at what he says. He, he, he says this in Luke 24. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at this. Beginning with Moses or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and with all the prophets, even first and second Samuel, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is ultimately not a story about how you can face your giants with bravery and courage. This is a story about Jesus, right? So it's not a kid story. It's not a fairy tale. This isn't like um, a biblical version of Bigfoot, right? This is, this, this is not just, you know, that that's going on. This is a real story that really happened. And it's interesting that the author is actually going to spend a long time detailing out this narrative. This is one of the most specific, detailed stories we have in all of First and Second Samuel and in the entire Old Testament. It's incredibly detailed. It's one of the longest chapters in the Old Testament. So to really understand what's happening here, you need to carefully look at the characters and realize that these characters, though they are real historical characters, they represent something so much bigger than themselves. So let's jump in. Uh, In order to understand what's going on, I need to give you a little bit of context so that you can see what's happening uh, in this story. In chapter 16, you remember last week, uh, Sean set us up. We met King David for the first time. We met our warrior poet for the first time. He was a little boy, the youngest of his brothers. Samuel the prophet goes to Jesse's house, and he's, he's looking at all the sons, and he's like, surely one of these guys is the king, and it ends up being the youngest brother who isn't even invited to the party. David shows up, he gets anointed as king, and you would expect him to like then turn the chapter, and he's ascended to the throne, but instead what we see in chapter 16, he does not become king for another 15 years. And in fact, what David does is he enters into the service of King Saul, playing music for Saul as Saul becomes to lose his mind as his anxieties become overwhelming. David, who is the anointed king, begins to serve the guy who actually is king at the time. And this is where we leave off in chapter 16. So when we open up to chapter 17, what you see is the Philistines gathering their armies again for battle against the Israelites. This is a common theme in this story. The Philistines and the Israelites face each other in battle again and again. This time what they do is the Philistines arrive on one mountain 
and the Israelites arrive on another mountain, and there's this valley called the Valley of Allah. I've got a photo of it here to show you. Uh, this Valley of Allah, and you have these two armies on either side, and this valley is like no man's land. This valley is like Death Valley. This is the valley of the shadow of death. You don't go into this valley because as soon as you do, war is going to start. The battle is going to be raging. So these armies are facing off, and around this time as they're facing off, ready to go to war with each other, kind of waiting on who, who is going to make the right move, what happens is uh, a, a champion, a man named Goliath, steps out into the valley, and he offers up what's called representational warfare. That representational warfare was, was not an uncommon thing in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It basically was something like this. Uh, the Philistines are going to offer up a champion, and the Israelites are going to offer up a champion, and we're going to let these two guys fight to the death, and whoever wins doesn't just win the battle, but wins the whole war. And instead of just, you know, winning the whole war, the losing side is now going to become slaves, basically indentured servants to the other country. So a lot is at stake here is Goliath, this champion of the Philistines, he walks out to the Valley of Allah and he challenges Israel. He says, who wants to fight? Like pick a, pick a champion and let's go to battle together. And if I win, then you guys become our slaves. And if you win, then we will become your slaves. So everything is on the line for Israel here. This is not just a single skirmish. The whole war is on the line. And not just the war, but like your family and your freedom and your home and your land. Everything is on the line here. Slavery and freedom are in the balance. So let's look at the very first character that we meet. Look at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs. And a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if, if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Fast forward to verse 16. For 40 days... The Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So the very first character that we meet is Goliath, the accuser of God's people. Now, there's some debate about how tall Goliath was, about how big uh, Goliath was. It's hard to get a really specific, accurate idea um, but I, I did a lot of research this week, and there's actually a group of scholars and archaeologists that carefully put together what they believe to be a modern rendering of what Goliath must have looked like. Uh, so we've got a photo to show you of what he must have looked like. <laughs> it's the best that they could do. We, we don't know how tall he was, but here's the point. This dude was tall. He was terrifying. He was big. I saw Stephen Adams once in a coffee shop, and I almost pooped my pants a little bit, right? 
He is a giant. His eyebrows are like the size of my arms, just two. Li- and, and so you got to just think, like, we don't know exactly how big, but the dude's armor weighed 125 pounds, right? His spearhead weighed 15 pounds, just the head of the spear. Like, this is a big guy. He's a, an, an intimidating guy. He's a physically scary guy. He's actually never called a giant in this story. He's never called a giant. He's called a champion, which is in some ways almost worse because a champion was someone who is known for their victory and courage in battle that they essentially become the mascot, the fighting mascot for their entire nation. That they're like, yeah, we just trust you. Like, you can go out to war and do whatever, and you are going to be fine. You will represent us well. So Goliath is a physically intimidating champion. Now, it's interesting that this story, his armor is described in such detail. There's actually more uh, description of his armor than any other person that we have in the Bible. Any other uh, armor or description of a, of a warrior in the entire Bible and it's really carefully chosen words. And often this is something that gets missed over. People don't realize. Uh, what is said in verse 5 about Goliath's armor is really significant to the storyline of Scripture. And this is why it takes up so much, uh, so much real estate in our story in the Bible. Uh, the ESV translation renders verse 5 a coat of mail. It says that Goliath was wearing a bronze coat of mail. Uh, but a more accurate rendering of what is actually being said in Hebrew, and most other translations translate it this way, uh, like NASB says, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor. Think about that, scale armor. Or another one, CSB, and he wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor. NIV, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. So let me try to unpack what's happening here. Like the author's trying to tell you something. Here comes this champion, the accuser of the people of God, and he's coming out to defy God and defy the people of God. And what is he dressed as? He's dressed as a serpent. And what is he doing? He's accusing the people of God night and day constantly. Like, you aren't going to measure up to me. You're weak, and you're powerless, and I'm going to defeat you, and you are going to be my slaves, and you're worthless. He does it morning and night. Eighty times Goliath shows up as the accuser of the people of God. And look at how the people of God respond to this in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and we're much afraid. And rightly so. It's like, well, he's right. We can't fight this guy. And what he's saying is true about us. He is the accuser of the people of God. Now, does, does this sound familiar to anybody? A person dressed as a serpent coming to the people of God, accusing them night and day. Does that sound familiar? See, Goliath is a real person, a real character that really, truly did live, and this is a story about him, but Goliath represents something so much bigger than just Goliath. Goliath represents our ultimate enemy, Satan himself, who comes to God and the people of God to defy us and to stand before us and to accuse us night and day. You see, friends, you actually do have a Goliath in your life. You actually do have like a giant in your life, but it isn't your boss. And it isn't your coworker. And it isn't your mounting consumer debt. 
And it isn't your, you know, just what your fears or insecurities. Like all of those things are maybe real, but those are not your Goliath. You really do have an enemy and your enemy is called Satan himself. And he comes to the people of God to accuse night and day. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I realize that to even talk about Satan and demons in a highly secular, materialistic culture like ours in 2019 makes you sound a little ridiculous. In fact, like, it's actually easier for our current culture to believe in the existence of aliens and, like, not bat an eye at that. But the second you talk about Satan and demons, people are, like, rolling their eyes at you. And I get that, but maybe that's actually one of their core tactics to keep us blind and pull the wool over our eyes and just to chalk up all the work of the enemy to either our own inner accusing voice or just something else. Like, I love, if you've not read C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, you really, really need to do yourself a favor, carve out some time and read that book. In that book, what C.S. Lewis does is he's writing as Screwtape, an older demon, who is discipling uh, Wormwood, a younger demon, and how to lead people away from Jesus. Specifically, there's a disciple that wants to, uh, is interested in Christianity and starts to uh, become more and more interested, eventually becomes a Christian. And in the book, this demon is discipling a young, younger demon on how to shipwreck his faith and how to kind of get him off track and walk away from Jesus. And in that book, uh, here's what Screwtape says to Wormwood early on. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade to him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Satan and demons are present and real realities. And you might not actually realize how frequent and often you are the subject of their attack. And one of the ways, there's a lot of ways that our ultimate enemy comes to accuse the people of God. There's a lot of ways that he does that. But simply one of the most profound ways that he does it is literally just by accusing us. There's a story in the Bible of a guy that comes to uh, the presence of God in the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies to worship. And as he does this, uh, Satan himself comes to accuse him. And this is something that I think frequently happens to you, probably more than you realize. And maybe you just chalk it up to your own inner voice. So let me just give you some examples. Some of you came to church this morning, and while we were singing some of these songs, you just thought, man, I'm not feeling it today. I'm just not feeling it today. And as soon as you kind of thought that, you heard this accusing voice. Well, yeah, it's probably because you didn't think about God one time this week. It's probably because another seven days passed of you ignoring him, didn't open up scripture, you didn't really pray. You were a really, really unfaithful Christian. What is that? That's the voice of the accuser speaking to you. Or maybe it's like this. Maybe you hear the inner accusing voice of the enemy when you walk into a room and you just have the sense of like, man, just look at you. Just look at you. You are a mess. If people knew what really was in you, if they knew the stuff that you did in secret, if they knew the stuff that you struggle with, they would not want anything to do with you. 
Or maybe it's while you're driving home from work and you just have this inner accusing voice of the enemy that says, hey, that thing from your past, you're never going to live it down. Ever. You can't really truly change. That's going to follow you till you die. That shame, that'll be with you till you die. Or maybe it's because of not something you've done. Maybe you hear the, the accusing voice of the enemy because of something that was done to you. And the voice goes, well, yeah, it was done to you because you really deserved it. Or it was done to you and it kept happening to you because you were defective. There's something wrong with you. The voice of the enemy comes to you in a lot of different ways. But maybe, just maybe, at the end of the day, you just kind of walk around with a low-grade fever of condemnation and accusation, constantly feeling like God doesn't really love you. Like he loves people in general, but he doesn't really love you. And maybe one day he might learn to put up with you, but because of your brokenness and your sin and your struggle and your weakness and your baggage, he's just kind of ashamed. And so the voice that you hear again and again and again is the voice of the accuser. And can I just tell you the sad thing about that? The sad thing about that is someone who gives voice to the voice of the accuser again and again and again doesn't grow in their intimacy with Jesus. They don't ever go, wow, I really want to be around Jesus now and I really want to be close to God now. No, it keeps you away from him because you feel like he's mad at you. And I just want you to realize if you're hearing in the third person, you don't this and you are this and you don't, it's probably not you unless you talk to yourself in the third person. It's probably your real Goliath, the enemy of God who comes to you night and day to accuse This is Goliath. This is what he does, literally, and this is what the enemy of God does spiritually to us all of the time. So he's the first character that we meet, the accuser of the people of God. Let's look at the second character that we meet. Second character in the story is Saul. And Saul represents the failure of our faux saviors. One of the things that's uh, forgotten in the story is is that there's actually not just one giant in the story. There are two giants in the story. Do you know who the other giant is in the story? Do you remember one of the first ways that Saul is described when we meet him earlier in the story in 1 Samuel chapter 9? Here's his description. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So this is actually a story where there are two giants. You have Goliath, who is the giant of the Philistines, and their champion... And you have Saul, who is the giant, quite literally giant of Israel. And he specifically was chosen by the people of God. Why? We reject God and we want a king because we want a king that's going to go before us and do what? Fight our battles. So who is the champion for the Israelites? Is it like an unknown champion? Are they just waiting for someone to come out and, and, and take up the, 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 the boldness and courage to say, no, no, I'll go do it? No, they had a champion. His name was King Saul. And the tragedy of King Saul is that rather than King Saul coming forward to be what the people picked him to be and be their champion and go out and fight their battles, literally giant versus giant, instead what Saul is doing is he's hiding and cowering in fear in his tent. The people chose him to fight their battles. And yet look at Saul in verse 11. When Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul represents the failure 
of our faux saviors. Every time that the people of Israel were placing their hope in something or someone other than Yahweh, the God of the Bible, every time that they were deciding to put their eggs in the basket of another hope, it always, always, always overpromised and never delivered what they thought. And here Saul is. He's hiding out in fear. He's filled with uh, uh, the opposite of courage. He's terrified. He's in his tent. He can't seem to muster up what he needs to go out and fight these battles. Now, does that sound familiar? It's because the people of Israel do what you and I do as well. We are constantly looking for a faux savior that's going to come to us and rescue us and fight our battles and name us and define us and give us what it is that we think we need. So this is a story that's not just about Saul and his failure of courage. It is about that. That really did happen. But Saul represents something bigger. Saul represents every time you and I reject God and trust in something or someone else to deliver us. And it never, ever works. It never delivers. See, here's the reality. All of us, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, all of us walked into the room today and everybody carries pain. Everybody. We all carry pain. Some of us are more aware of the pain that we carry than others, but we all carry pain. Some of us carry pain because of things that were said over us when we were children, when we were kids, by people in our lives that should have called out the best in us, but they actually functionally spoke things that cursed us and affected us. So we're living with that pain. Some of us are living with the pain of stuff that was done to us. Some of us are living with the pain of Uh, our own insecurities, our own failures. We all carry pain. I don't know what your pain is, but we all walked into the room carrying an acute sense of pain. Also, we all walked into the room and we all carry fear. Everybody, we all carry fear. We carry fear about not measuring up, fear about being defective, fear about ruining our life or the lives of the people that we love, fear about not having enough resources to survive, Fear about what we're going to do next year is the economy. I mean, fear about all kinds of things in our life. We all walked in the room with fear. And all of us, even if you're an atheist, we all have our own version of hell, don't we? Our own version of hell. Like this thing that you know if, if, if this, the worst case scenario were to happen, you would almost feel like life isn't even worth living. So whatever that is, it's like what we're doing is we're, with our pain and with our fear and with our own version of hell, is we are clamoring. We are clamoring to find something out there that will numb the pain that we carry. Something out there that are going to calm the fear that we have. Someone or something out there that's going to deliver us and rescue us from our hell. And so what we do is we actually end up functionally rejecting Jesus as king and we place other saviors in our lives, these faux saviors that we think are going to rescue us from this hell. They're going to numb the pain. They're going to fix the problem. They're going to take away my fear. And the problem with all of that is they all end up like King Saul, terrified in a tent, unable to do anything for us. This is our faux saviors. And this is how we often live. And so this is a story that I feel like I really can't relate to a group of Israelites facing off in battle against Philistines. Actually, you really can relate. Because though they had a physical enemy named Goliath, you and I have a far more terrifying spiritual enemy, Satan and demons, who come to us night and day to accuse the people of God. 
And you and I, we have these faux saviors that we've placed in our lives to, to do for us what we think they, they can do for us to get us out of our false hell. And the reality is they've actually not delivered. And now, here we are, we're terrified and we're empty. We don't know what to do. This is their story, but it's also our story as well. And so let, let's just ask the question, what character in the story do we play? And the answer to this, very clearly, hopefully you know this, is we are not David. We are, like, the message of the Bible is not, so here's the reality. You've got this bad enemy in your life, and, and obviously, like, these faux saviors haven't done anything for you, so just go for it, man. Like, clean up your life and fix it and take control and make the change and turn over the new leaf and just go for it, and you'll be okay. No, no, we are not David. We are a character in the story. We do belong here, but do you know where we fit? We are the people of Israel. When you read the story, that's the part that you and I play. What are they doing? They're standing on the sidelines, terrified, weak, unable to do anything. They've got Goliath in front of them, and behind them they've got a king that's doing nothing for them, And here they are. It's like death is in in front and there's not any rescue in sight. We are the people of Israel. It's like when you look inside of your life, when you look outside, there's nothing here that's going to help us. We are Israel, weak and terrified and in need of someone to come and rescue us. And so that leads me to the last character that I want to introduce you to, and that's David. David is the rescuer that you and I need. So just think about David for a second. This is fascinating. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but David is an unlikely boy from Bethlehem who has been anointed as king over God's people and the Holy Spirit has come and rushed upon him. David is then sent by a word from his father to his brothers in battle against their accuser, of the people of God. David finds his people scared and terrified and frozen in fear and unable to save themselves. And then guess what David does? David decides to step in as a representative for the people. And he goes in danger of losing his own life. He puts himself at risk in front of the people of God. And he goes to war with a guy that looks like a serpent who is accusing the people of God. And what David does is, without the people of Israel having to lift one finger, David has victory over their enemy. He cuts off the head of the serpent giant, and then now the people of Israel are set free from the potential of slavery, and his victory becomes their victory. Does that story sound familiar to anybody? If you know anything about Jesus, this is all about Jesus. The unlikely boy from Bethlehem who was sent by a word of his father from heaven to earth to rescue the people of God. And listen, not at risk of his own life, but literally by giving his own life, he goes to a cross. And on the cross, he stands in as the representative for the weak and the broken and the poor and the unrighteous. And he takes our sin upon himself and he dies the death that we deserve to die. He rises again from the dead and he's victorious, not just over our sin, but over Satan and over death itself. And without us having to lift a finger, his victory becomes our victory. 
This is a story about Jesus, our David, that we need. And here's what I loved about the stories I read back through. It's like, that might be obvious to us, but I, I loved the lack of reluctance in David's heart. He doesn't come to the people of God. This struck me so profoundly. He doesn't come to the people on the battlefront and see Goliath accusing and harassing. He doesn't go, guys, what the heck are you doing? Like, are you literally going to let this go? What are you doing right now? He doesn't come to his brothers and say, brothers, I'm disappointed in you. Brothers, I'm ashamed to call you brothers. Brothers, I can't even believe that you are acting so helpless. He doesn't, go to, he doesn't go to the people and say, well, of course this would happen. You rejected God and chose King Saul. Like, this is what you deserve. You are getting what you deserve. No, look at the heart of David. Look at what David says. David said to Saul, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. You see what he's saying? Say, hey, man, don't be scared. It's okay. I'll go fight. I'll go do it. You don't need to be ashamed. I'll go take care of it for you. That is the heart of Jesus for every person in this room. He's not ashamed to call you brothers or sisters. He actually goes on to refer to Goliath. He's like, hey, man, you remember like when I was watching my sheep and a lion or a bear would come and try to drag one of them off? You see what he's doing is he's connecting the people of God. He's saying, I want to be your shepherd. I want to be your shepherd. He's just like another lion or a bear. He's trying to drag you off. I'm going to go kill him for you because I love you guys. That is the heart of Jesus for you. So listen, listen, I don't, I don't know your story. I don't know what you brought into the room. I don't know the parts of your past that you wish you could rip out. What I do know is that all of that does not disqualify you from a heart of Jesus that looks at you and says, hey, it's okay. I'm going to fight your battle. I'll put myself in your place. I will defeat your enemy. That voice of the enemy, I'm going to silence that voice. All of you in the room are invited to come and experience the heart of Jesus for you in that way. He looks at our sin and our shame and our guilt and our accuser and he says, let no man's heart fail because of those things. I'll take care of it. So where do we go from here? I want to invite you to embrace the real story of the Bible. This is big for us in Oklahoma because in Oklahoma we've got it all backwards and we've turned this into a story, a narrative about how you and I can just clean up our life and do better and try harder. That is not Christianity. It never was. Like, can I just tell you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we are not in this room because we're really awesome people. And, and none of us really think that. Like, we are honestly some of the worst people you've ever met, but we've been loved by Jesus, and he's changing us. And it's slow, and it's steady, but it's really happening. And it can happen for you too. Embrace the real story of the Bible. This is a story about Jesus coming to rescue people that were helpless and couldn't help themselves. Second thing is I want you to learn to agree and also disagree with Satan's accusations against you. You got to learn to agree with Satan at times, which sounds weird for a pastor to say, but it's true. There are times where he'll come to you and he'll say, yeah, you did this and you did that and you didn't do this and you don't measure up. And if people only knew, and this is in your past and that happened and this and this and this. And when he says those things to you, do you know what you have to do? Hey, you know what? You're right. All of those things are true. 
but you also have to learn to disagree. But you're also forgetting a part of the story. And that's that Jesus has actually defeated you. Jesus has actually changed out my identity. Jesus has actually forgiven me of all the things that you've just accused me of. I really did do them, you're right. But Jesus has forgiven me. So if God doesn't condemn me, then you certainly can't condemn me either. You've got to learn to agree and disagree with Satan's accusations. And then finally, the third thing, I just, I just want to invite you to reject your faux saviors and receive the son of David today. Reject your faux saviors. Where have you placed hope for identity and significance and meaning and something that looks like a King Saul in your life, something that you're expecting and hoping is going to numb your pain, fight your battles, deal with your fears, rescue you from your false hell, begin to name those parts of your life, reject them. Because what you really need is the son of David, Jesus Christ. He will truly, not just numb your pain, he will heal you. He will not come to you and just like calm your fears. He will completely deal with them. He will come to you and not rescue you from some version of hell. He rescues us from hell itself. The son of David loves you and he's for you.